there's some words that you carry with you forever. And me personally as a musician, and I know a lot of people around me carry a set of words with them said by a musician that are really important, and I'm pretty sure, Ian, you know what I'm talking about. This machine kills fascists. It's such an interesting concept when painted upon an acoustic guitar. You sit for a minute and you look at it and you think, what of a mechanism can music be that kills fascists? Especially in an era where war was what it was. Thank you for listening to Dude Check Out the Song. I'm Ian. I'm Pat. Today, we've got a very special artist. He means a lot to both of us. He was born Woodrow Wilson Guthrie on July 14th, 1912 in Okama, Oklahoma. The third child of five from Charles and Nora Guthrie. And it's funny, his name is Woodrow Wilson because he really was named after the president. To quote from one of his shows, he said, My father was a hard, fist-fighting Woodrow Wilson Democrat, so Woodrow Wilson was my name. And that's right, we're talking about Woody Guthrie. Yep, that's a beautiful, beautiful statement. Yeah. And both of his parents, they were musically inclined. They taught Woody Guthrie to play folk tunes from a young age. He learned his first instruments were guitar and harmonica, pretty much his only instruments, really. Yeah, I mean, but really, <laughs> what other instruments do you need to be a folk hero of legend? And he was brought up on blues and native songs favored by his father and folk songs favored by his mother. Well, we, I'm sure we know which one's stuck a little more. Yeah, but I mean, they probably all influence his music nonetheless. Uh, yeah, there's, there is a, a tone of blues, even though his music doesn't really reach that at any point. Yeah, there's definitely blues tones in what he sings about for sure. But his childhood wasn't all puppy dogs and gummy bears and stuff. He had a lot of tragedy when he was a kid. His sister Clara accidentally died in a house fire that destroyed their family home. And this when? wasn't... I couldn't find an actual date, but it's just early in his childhood. Oh, wow. And really, this was one of two homes that got burned down. Another was just completely destroyed. What? Like, two of his childhood homes burnt down? Yeah. Well, I mean, what? I guess, what year is it? Like, 1920, and he's out in... Yeah, in, Oklahoma. What is that built out of in a dry <laughs> area? You know just what I mean? shitty wood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no electricity yet. They've Not probably to, got, like, lanterns. It was lanterns. probably winter, oh, and, you know, yeah. it had I'm, to stay warm. I'm I'm seeing a lot of fire happens here. <laughs> They're probably like, hey, we should sleep on all this dried hay <laughs> and then, next and then to the this one, oil lamp. And then the one that was destroyed was probably just hit by a tornado. Oh, yeah. I mean, God knows what else it could have been hit by. I don't yeah. even want to make that a... That thought of logic. <laughs> yeah, other tragedies. His father had financial ruin. And a big one is the institutionalization of his mother, who was found to suffer from Huntington disease. What the fuck is Huntington's disease? That's why I put it down in my notes. <laughs> it is a fatal genetic disorder that causes the progressive breakdown of nerve cells in the brain. It deteriorates a person's physical and mental abilities usually during the prime working years, and has no cure. Oh, that's fucked up. That is that is terrible. And so at the age of 14, Guthrie and his siblings were left to fend for themselves while his father worked in Tampus, Texas, to repay his debts during the Great Depression. Tampus, Texas? Tampus. T-A-M-P-A-S. Tampus. Tampus. Is that still a place? Uh, <laughs> i uh, I don't know. Uh, yes, Shout actually, it is. It Shoutouts is. to Tampa, Texas. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't know where you we, were. You we, feel free to hit us on whatever social media you want and yell at us. 
It is a place. It is still a place. Yeah, if I told you the town I was from, you wouldn't know where it was either. (laughs) And so with this and the institutionalization of his uh, mother, he began rambling. And, you know, this is where he started busking on the streets for food or money. So much busking this season. Well, I think that was the way you started. I mean, I know I've done my fair share of busking, but I was never really begging for money. I just more wanted to play outside. You got to think this is during the Great Depression, so... And he was 14, probably didn't really, you know. Yeah, I mean, at that at that point, you got to do something. Yeah. And so he literally just busts for food, basically. Yeah, I mean, but you got to yeah. do what you got to do if you got a guitar. And he would spend life on the road, but he would always come back to Okama, return to high school to t- continue his education. Wait, so every summer he would go out and that, venture into the world? That's what, and... that's what it made it seem like. Like, he would travel out during the summer, make some money, and then come back and uh, get educated. Yeah. So that's one thing that would really play into his life is tragedy. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you've got the tragedy of his early life and things like that. And we're going to kind of jump a little bit just. And it's not even just the tragedy of his life either. Yeah. I mean, it's it's tragedy in general. He writes about a lot of influenced events that happen when he is one and two years old. And like a lot of events that happen in the country, like early in the infancy of our country. And uh one of the things that I really wanted to point out is he wrote a song about the Ludlow Massacre, which happened, I mean, when he was two years old. This is, what, 1914, so. 1914, yeah, he was yeah. born in 1912, so. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it is a it is a terrible event. Like, he writes about things that are really true, and that's something that I really wanted to put forward is his style of music. It's so focused on, like, honest realizations of, like, things that are going on and, and oh, yeah. spreading the word. Focused on common folk. Yeah, I know, like, because it was all about, like, bringing, like, because I don't feel like a lot of these situations were being spread informationally, you know what I mean? The average citizen probably didn't know as much as they do today. Like, no, information was he so wrote, much He wrote about what he saw and experienced, for sure. But it also made him, I, I feel like, bring forward things that might be forgotten. And, like, so if you listen to a song, I'm going to throw this out, dude, check out this song. Our first one of the podcast. Yeah, the first one of the podcast, The Ludlow Massacre. As a secondary, I'm going to put on, uh, you can check out the 1913 Massacre as well. 1913 Massacre, while in a very sad song and a sad thing, honestly sounds more like a failure of architecture than anything else because (laughs) the 1913 quote-unquote massacre is also known as the Italian house something. I can't, I I, I, I forgot. It's it's in my notes somewhere, but I'm not even going to look. But either way, somebody yelled fire during Christmas. And everybody ran scarily down the stairs and a whole bunch of people got trampled. And there's an argument that they got to the bottom of the stairs and the doors opened inward instead of outward. What? But on all the plans and subsequent like imaging, the the doors opened outwards. (laughs) So either there's a grand conspiracy to change the door shape and, and make it so that it looks like it opens outwards or. Oh, no. Are we getting into conspiracies? No, I'm not believing this conspiracy. I'm not believing in 1913 somebody was able to go change every record there were of this house to sit and take pictures of the doors opening outwards just to cover up the fact that a whole bunch of idiot miners trampled themselves on Christmas Eve or something. (laughs) And it was it's terrible. Like I wasn't I I wasn't going to bring this part up. but (laughs) It really is sad. And it is. But but herd mentality is not something that we're going to focus on. No. But, so what you're saying is we're not changing the name of the podcast to do check out this conspiracy. Yeah, no, or dude check out this tragedy. Neither of those things are going to be fun. Uh, there might like be a music. couple of dude check out this tragedies. I think you already just mentioned yeah, two. Yeah, do so, dude. Ch- <laughs> dude check out this tragedy, Ludlow Massacre. <laughs> so 
even worse. Okay, yeah. so apparently that can, can you not laugh while you say, <laughs> "Dude, check out this tragedy." <laughs> Please let, let's be respectful. At least I didn't say, "Dude, check out this domestic massacre," because this is really the best titling for what happens. So they're they're trying to break up strikes. So the Col- the Colorado National Guard and the Fuel and Iron Company guards. So all the iron <laughs> all the iron workers started striking because the conditions were terrible. And because of that, the company said, okay, well, you need to move out of all the houses that you live in because we own the houses and you're not oh. working anymore. So 1,200 workers marched up to Ludlow. Okay. We're, gonna, we're just going to lo- refer to it as Ludlow for now because this is really the best terminology. And so they all formed a big tent camp. Okay. For whatever reason, the Colorado National Guard is assisting the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. Which, well, the National Guard did help out with a lot of these strikes in the early days. And I may also add that this company is owned by none other than John D. Rockefeller Jr., Uh-oh. who is actively in charge of the company at the time. So dude, if we, check out this conspiracy. Dude, check out this conspiracy, John D. Rockefeller. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it is a heavy coincidence. But either way, they sat down on uh, April 20th, 1914, and uh, with machine guns, on a tent colony, then there's no apparent, like, preemptive strike. These guys are simply not working because it is terrible, terrible, terrible conditions. And people are dying. Shocking. Because they're coal miners. Oh, so, yeah. They, a lot of them died. Yeah, I mean, fucking coal miners, man. <laughs> Dude, everybody knows as a generic experience that coal mining sucks. But either way, uh, yeah, <laughs> approximately 21 people, including wives and children, were killed. And either way, conspiracy theorists to this day are still talking about the fact that John D. Rockefeller is owning the place and the National Guard mowed down a whole bunch of people who just didn't seem to be supporting his massive wealth. So, Oh, man. You can take that any way you want. People not supporting the rich. I hate that. But apparently this is, this was the Colorado Coal Wars. The Colorado Coal Wars? The Colorado Coal Wars. Because <laughs> this is not an isolated event. There's multiple events. It gets even worse. Where Though Ludlow uh, turns out to be the single deadliest event in the uh, whole coal strike. <laughs> Between September 1913 and uh, December 1914, the miners organize and fi- start fighting back. Of course they do. You're going to start <laughs> mowing them down. They're going to fight back. Yeah, it, it it gets really bad. Essentially, like, I've read portions of it, and it reads like a military document. It's like there is a, there's a 40-mile front line from Trinidad to Walsenburg. A front line? Do they dig trenches, yeah, too? Yeah, you heard me. 40-mile trenches. Or, well, I mean, they probably didn't read I mean, <laughs> Based on what it sounds like, it sounds like they're just mowing down. So it's 40 miles of quote-unquote front line. <laughs> these guys just didn't want to work in a coal mine they weren't even like no i don't even it doesn't even sound like that it just sounds like they wanted safety precautions yeah, like no, we're like, tired of dying in yeah, this fucking no, so, hole so the the thought was like i'm still trying to follow this and i might be missing something you know i'm not a i'm not a historical thing but maybe these evil evil coal miners stopped working in the coal mines for john d rockefeller for reasons and then the national guard bowed them down with machine guns while they were in a camp intruding their wives and children that feels like a reasonable response uh if you follow the song like the song is really good i actually like the song and have tried to cover it several times never really doing it justice but they talk about like putting the kids in a hole 
like hiding all the ch- the wives and children. Mm. In the hole. I'm not sure how. Like I'm, I don't know if Woody Guthrie's trying to play this up, but you know what I mean. Like you yeah. you'd have to dig a hole to put the wives and children, in, and it still doesn't do good. And there was but, probably a certain level of embellishment in his songs. Yeah, too. There, I mean there has to be. He had to have written that on his own. How many years afterwards? And he doesn't even have the access to the sources that we would have. You well, know what I mean? And, and his my, dad and was, was a hard fighting. Woodrow yeah. Wilson Democrat. <laughs> yeah, so. so you really, really did want to get involved in this. So there was like multiple fuel companies involved, like the Fuel and Iron Company, which is the rock filler company that we've been talking about, but also like the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company and the Victor American Fuel Company were all involved in this giant, like, where the miners, I guess, they were probably concerned that you had mowed down their wives and children <laughs> <while they were laughs> camp. But either way, they went down to, if you followed the song, uh, they sent some of the wives down with wheelbarrows full of potatoes to uh, Trinidad, and they got a bunch of guns for the potatoes, and they brought the guns back. And oh, then, man, what a world. I got I, some potatoes. Can you give me a gun? <laughs> yeah, so they do, they're they killing my people up here. I got some taters. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder what the ratio to how many potatoes for guns you get nowadays. Yeah, no, I, I mean, what, what is you got the a whole You got a whole sack? That's a half a glob. Are we doing weight for weight? <laughs> that's not a lot that's not a lot of guns per potato Man, it's got to be per sack <laughs> how many sacks of potatoes does it get to get a clock nine come on now <laughs> but either way so at, at this point it gets to the headline where the uh the miners they arm themselves and they attack anti-union establishments for 10 days they destroyed property engaged in skirmishes at this point the colorado guard made it even worse on them and there was an estimated 69 to 199 deaths oh wow so it was just like an actual war zone though. yeah so for 40 miles it, it turned into coal miners versus america and no coal miners versus the rich yeah well i mean that is america yeah. if you really think about it but i'm not thinking it's not dude check out this political agenda so dude check out this political opinion yeah dude <laughs> we're not doing a lot of that this episode we're gonna get into some political stuff <laughs> yeah, because honestly, we have to with woody guthrie yeah there's exactly just, there's no other way around it we're gonna keep it in the frame of their politics and we're not gonna mention any like common politics, you can apply whatever colored lens you may wear. You you might hear some of our sarcasm about politics in general, though. Yeah, it's, you know, it is what it is. Either way, the Lobo ma- Massacre, uh, it's the watershed moment. So a watershed moment apparently is like a, a moment where the big changing moment, but for the American label arts, or excuse me, labor relations. Label. Label <laughs> arts. But I, I, I wasn't... Uh, included into this whole uh the music label industry was in this <laughs> well sorry uh, i, I yeah. missed that part so either way th- no anyway it's <laughs> <laughs> so the labels that came in and said kill them all so there was a notably huge public outrage about the government you know shooting down all these civilians i'm pretty surprised honestly yes. <laughs> so uh, eventually the uh, the house committee on miners and mining to investigate the events Essentially, uh, its reports, which were published in 1915, were influential in promoting child labor laws and the eight-hour workday. Like, promoting child labor laws as in they wanted child labor? No, like, like <laughs> I got, <laughs> child, promoting the laws about child labor. Okay. In, not, not like laws that you have to have children working. Your kid's six, get them in the mind. No, child labor laws are actually against <laughs> child labor, thankfully. Thank God. But either way, the Ludlow site is still owned by the United Mine Workers of America Union. And it's erected a giant granite statue. And it's a monument to the memory of those who died that day. 
It's about 18 miles northwest of Trinidad, Colorado, which still has the same name, you know, Trinidad. That's, yeah. where, that's where you take the potatoes to get the guns. Oh, you get it in Trinidad? Yeah, Trinidad. So all if, right. you, if you all ever need guns, you just take a bunch of potatoes down to Trinidad, and you tell them that Woody Guthrie sent you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm growing potatoes in my backyard yeah, no, tomorrow. Exactly. See, this is a good... I, I wonder what that... Biz, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up a spreadsheet. We're going we're gonna to see what the business implications of potatoes to guns. <laughs> when we figure this out, we'll release it for you guys. <laughs> yeah, this is... Dude, check out... Never mind. Dude, check out the spreadsheet. <laughs> Yeah, either way, there's a National Historical Landmark. Uh, it was established on January 16, 2009. Evidence and modern archaeological investigation largely supports the events that the strikers said. So essentially, everything that they went and looked at and everything that scientists to this day have went and looked at, they're still seeing that, yeah, the only thing that happened is that the National Guard and those fucking guys mowed down civilians. <laughs> and then they got guns. That's, there's no there's so, no dispersion so, of that information so they're saying the coal miners didn't start it yeah that's that's the the stories you hear are largely true so do check out this ludlow massacre mainly check out the song honestly all right and so at the age of 19 woody guthrie relocated to pampas texas where he married mary jenning jennings with Mary, whom? Mary Jennings? Yeah. That's such like an American girl name. I like that. I bet she's got locks. <laughs> and he had three children with her, Gwen, Sue, and Bill. Gwen, Sue, and Bill. But it wasn't the happiest marriage because the Dust Bowl hit. And living in the Great Plains area, oh, no. it hit them really hard. Yeah, that thing sucks. And so Woody Guthrie left his family in Texas in 1935 to join the thousands of Okies who are migrating west in search of work. Yeah, that is that is terrible. So, I mean, honestly, just to keep that in perspective, anybody who's never read, like, The Grapes of Wrath or hasn't done any focus on this, the fucking the Dust Bowl is terrible. Terrible. One day in, uh, like, Oklahoma area slash half of the country, they're fucking chilling, and they have a nice, lush farmland that is doing quite well for the first time, but... If you follow historical, archaeological, and other investigations, it's likely the fact that it wasn't properly irrigated yep. and, and they had, they had you know, deteriorated the soil in such a nasty mm-hmm. way. But either way, you know, regardless of the fact that they might have done terrible things without knowing it, one day a wall of sand, like 500 <laughs> feet tall in the sky. It's pretty bad. If you've never entire... seen a documentary on it, it's terrible. Yeah, so do check out the Dust Bowl if you haven't. <laughs> it's terrible. It's probably one of the biggest tragedies of american history in all reality and another thing i gotta say is the term oaky which nowadays people from oklahoma have taken it back like yeah we're okies but back in the day that was a slang term for people who moved from the dust bowl like it's like calling an italian guy wop or something yeah no exactly. and i can say that because i am italian yeah it's his word he's taking it back i'm taking it back but either way like that's one of the things there's even like distortion or like a in the country labels, like there's there's interactions where they're like trying to say like you know you can't call yourself an Okie because it's a negative connotation because yep. it's about those you know because there's Okie from Muskogee. Yeah, I was just about to mention oh, that. Which sorry, had Oklahomans call themselves Okies, but Merle Haggard was basically like, I lived through this shit. Like this word like means so so much more. Like I'm an Okie because because and he wasn't born in the Dust Bowl, but he was born in the migrant camps later. And so he was called an Okie because he lived with all of them. So. Yeah, because he was born into it. That's even yeah. worse. So that's not even you had to leave. As and a so he was born worker. into being an Okie. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, he's just an Okie from Muskogee, you know, it was kind of a, yeah, this is what everybody calls me. Yeah. It's kind of a gypsy thing, you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's <laughs> heavy, like, Okies are American gypsies, if you really think about it. There's... I don't I don't remember hearing any stories about them stealing babies, though. This is not dude check out this gypsy history, <laughs> so moving forward. We're going to do that one later. Yeah. But a history on gypsy music. 2023, guys. <laughs> so, anyway, he headed out for California, playing his guitar and harmonica, singing in taverns, taking odd jobs, visiting hobo camps. He traveled by freight, hitchhike, and sometimes just simply walked. It was also during these years that he developed a taste for the road that would never quite leave him. So this is so common. Okay, as a musician who plays accordion and, you know, enjoys a pair of boots, you'd think I would have fallen into this. And I've seen a lot of people get into this really hard, this this rambling blues, you know what I mean? We've yeah. heard of the rambling blues so much. Oh, yeah. I like soft beds, guys. Like, I'm not trying to, <laughs> not trying to disperse it's any, a of hard my, life. any of my rambling, gambling bros. You can see me anytime when you come to town, but god damn, I like a heater every once in a while. <laughs> I mean, just even living in a van with three or four other dudes sucks. You yeah, know? Like, no, it, just even think for of a few it, days, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> terrible. Just imagine how stinky that van gets. But Touring either. is not easy. Yeah, but either way, this this whole rambling thing, it's associated with gambling, and it's associated with, like, light crime, but not heavy crime, and so, like, it becomes this, this sort of American gypsy kind of attitude, and it, it is, while very interesting, is almost enigmatic in the fact that it doesn't actually make a lot of logical sense. And it almost doesn't even really exist anymore anyway. Like, if you think about it, more people are staying at home nowadays. Well, I mean, with, there's always crust punks. <laughs> I just call them train hopping kids now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's almost the same thing. But that's what I'm saying. That's a it's a it's a folk realization of it. It's a they take the time and they make it uh, romanticized almost. Nobody nobody you can't ride a freight train anymore. There ain't no rambling hobos out there for you to have some sort of old school adventure with down by a pond. That's not the life anymore, but people still out there may be doing it. I may be wrong. You know, if by some means you're rambling, well, they're, gambling, prob- they're probably rambling around now, but they probably got a tent packed with them and stuff like that now. Yeah. So, I mean, by all means, if you're a rambling, gambling hobo and I have just made an ass of myself in front of the massive rambling, gambling hobo crowd, please at me. Yeah. Email Pat, not me. <laughs> Hit Ian with stuff, too. He he likes stuff about rambling and gambling. <laughs> so by 1937, he actually arrived in California. And he landed a job with Maxine Lefty Lou Chrisman, a radio performer of traditional folk music. Okay, so this is second girl? No, he doesn't marry her. Oh, he doesn't marry her. No, he just gets a job with her on the radio as a performer playing traditional folk music on KFVD in Los Angeles. Ooh. I mean, that's more salty than, than getting together. That's playing <laughs> folk music on the radio. <laughs> Yeah, so they soon got a loyal following from the Okies living in the migrant camps all across California. And that's where a lot of his songs started becoming popular, like Do Re Mi, Pretty Boyd Floyd, Dust Bowl Refugee, Ain't Got No Home, Going Down the Road Feeling Bad, Talking Dust Bowl Blues, Tom Joad and Hard Traveling. Dude, check out that Talking Dust Bowl Blues. <laughs> My dude, check out the song. I have several from that list, but Pretty Boy Floyd, Hard Traveling. And ain't got no home in this world. Oh, my God. 
Uh, I ain't got no home in this world. That's one know. of my favorites. That's such a good song. Once again, we're we've covered... I, just me mentioning it. The song's already playing in my head. <laughs> yeah, though. So we we've covered this before. This may not be your genre. This may not be something you give a literal fuck about. Take the time to appreciate it just from an outside perspective. And you know what? We're going to get to your stuff eventually. And you're going to understand and hope that other people are going to take that time to really focus on yours as well. Well, and honestly, we've covered musicians that aren't really in our wheelhouse. And it just really, if you listen to it, it gives you greater appreciation for the music that came before us anyway. They weren't in my wheelhouse before we started. And they're, that's true. They're in my wheelhouse now. <laughs> Honestly, every every musician from this season is in my personal playlist now. And so, obviously, Woody Guthrie, you know, he was a witness to the Hoovervilles and the migrant camps. And, you know, he was drawn to people and started to really develop a social conscious. And with actor Will Gear, I don't know how I fucked that name up so bad. <laughs> <laughs> you burned out. The look on your face was, I was like, where, where is this crazy name coming out? Will Gear. Wait, what? <laughs> All right, anyways, moving forward. <laughs> Actor Will Gear teamed up with Woody, and they both toured labor camps and farm worker strikes. And on that note, do check out the song Union Made. And so, the, this so they, song they actually... Toured, they toured the strike zones. like they're Oh, they, they toured the strikes. They toured labor camps. This uh, doesn't look good on them in the future. I'm going to cover a little certain like national vision issue that we have with Woody <laughs> Guthrie later. And oh, this, well, this, yeah. is the first, this is the first nail in that coffin. Uh, maybe not the first nail. Okay, this is This, this is, is like of... him buying the hammer. Yeah, this is, he's purchased his own <laughs> hammer at this point. But anyway, the song Union Made kind of means something to me working in a union anyway so you know it's yeah exactly do you feel very communist right now uh no oh i just feel like a worker man gasp well you're gonna call me out i'm not a communist but i do think unions have a good thing going we're gonna get a little bit back into that moving (laughs) there's pros and cons (laughs) damn you fuck you So in 1940, he arrived in New York City with his family this time and was discovered by Alan Lomax. Alan Lomax, my man. Yeah, how many times have we mentioned him now? He's in almost every episode. This dude is a badass. Yeah. In this very moment, we're throwing him on the two, or this, this season two list. Yeah, we put him on the list just before we started recording. Yep, so he's going to get his own spotlight soon. He's he needs a, one because he, he keeps coming up. He's done such badass stuff. Him and his dad are just a couple of hard-hitting mofos. I hope we think that same way after we do the research. Uh, <laughs> everybody, so. everybody gets the asshole spotlight <laughs> after you look hard enough. Come on. So this is where he starts buying the nails. Woody Guthrie was warmly embraced by leftist artists, union organizers, and folk musicians. And he collaborated with musicians like Cisco Houston, Burl Ives, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, Josh White, Miller Lamper, Bess Haas, Sis Cunningham, Lead Belly, and Pete Seeger. So this is going to be a dude check out this ancillary character, (laughs) Cisco Houston. This is a shout-out for you. Just his whole discography is so interesting. If you take a look, he's done some amazing things. Yeah, maybe we'll have to do an episode on him someday, too. Maybe. And, yeah, this is where his career really started blossoming. He took up social causes and, you know, really tried to make folk music as something to change, you know, something to help with change. Around this time, you know, he recorded and released the Dust Bowl Ballad, you know, so obviously... Yeah, I uh, mean, well, wouldn't you? I mean, this, so this is like a theme. Like I said, he he writes about this like 
dark tragedy of his existence and others' existence around him to really, like, spread, I guess, awareness. And if you've ever listened to Woody Guthrie, they may be lamenting sad songs, but nothing is, like, portrayed like, you did this, you're bad. It's always portrayed in such just a, this happened, we shouldn't do this. Yeah. What is your guys' We gotta change humans. Yeah, exactly. Like, would you stop being a jackass, the song? (laughs) Oh, oh, hold on, I've been forbade from singing. That's like at least 75% of his career. Exactly. So, I mean, if you really take a look at Woody Guthrie, the final words on his career, don't be a dick. (laughs) (laughs) But really around this time, what he's really known for recording is his most famous song. This land is your land. I mean, I'm going to say every single person who lives in America who is listening to this song knows this one. Has heard some version of it. Honestly, this is I'm, I'm kind of curious about this. If anybody's out there listening at this point who is not from America, do you guys know this song? Is this like why I wouldn't assume so. I mean, it's kind of it, it's kind it's kind of comes like, out nationalistic from the other oh, side. Well, it, it was definitely regarded by many people as an alternative national anthem, too. Yeah, no, exactly. And so it, it is extremely nationalistic, which is kind of, you know, Schrodinger's Woody Guthrie. Not only can he write <laughs> this land is your land, the most patriotic <laughs> song of all time. He's also a bloody commie. Burn him. Well, here's speaking of bloody commies. Some say it is a Marxist response to God bless America. Yeah, I've heard that as well. And, and there, there's one verse and I've got it here that kind of, you know, shows it was leaning that way. There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted and said private property, but on the backside, it didn't, didn't say, say nothing. nothing. This land was made for you and me. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> I, I, I know that verse and I've used it in my version specifically because it does have that kind of, you understand where the communism intonations begin to come here. And at this point, he's already participated in socialist events. Oh, yeah. He, he's singing for the common man, which yep. obviously makes you a fucking bloody commie. And he's, he's becoming part of Tin Pan Alley. I yeah, mean. no, exactly. So now he's joined, <laughs> he's joined the, uh, joined the, the ranks the, the ranks of the devil's court. <laughs> well, and then there's another one that Arlo Guthrie, his son, and Pete Seeger have sang in their songs. And this was found on a loose-leaf paper from one of his daughter Nora's archives of his, of Woody Guthrie. And it goes, One bright sunny morning in the shadow of the steeple, by the relief office, I saw my people. As they stood hungry, I stood there wondering if God blessed America for me. So rough. <laughs> like, yeah, I get it. You know, you can you can take already the, the few infractions, you know, for communism sympathy if you kind of take that nationalism point of view i understand that just because i get the logical leaps that are made there the man didn't write like let's all convert to communism you know disperse the wealth no he just he just says does it is that really true that was the simple question provided there was you know they say it's liberty for everybody but here's everybody standing in line for soup and you know yeah it was still back in a time where there wasn't a whole lot of uh, sympathy for other people. Yeah, and I mean, in some cases it has gotten a lot better, but in some cases it hasn't. So, you know, maybe if you're out there judging somebody for the wrong reasons, take a second to Woody Guthrie, well, you know? And I got a really good quote. I think this is a proper place to put this, and this is a Woody Guthrie quote. It says, There's several ways of saying what's on your mind, and in states and counties where it ain't too healthy to talk too loud, speak your mind, or even vote like you want to, 
folks have found other ways of getting the word around. One of the mainest ways is by singing. Drop the word folk and just call it real old, honest-to-God American singing. No matter who makes it up, no matter who sings it, and who don't, if it talks the lingo of the people, it's a cinch to catch on and will be sung here and yonder for a long time after you've cashed in your chips. If the fight gets hot, the song gets hotter. If the going gets tough, the song gets tougher. That's just so rough, man. Like, <laughs> it is true. <laughs> well, and this was a lot. Of, you know, a lot of his inspiration came from tragedy. You know, and he grew up like he, his formative years were during the Great Depression. And it, we're gonna get more into this at the end of the season. This Great Depression, but it really fucks everybody up. Like, <laughs> it you know, really did fuck. It makes it other makes, than the rich. Yeah, well, it makes <laughs> the people who have even more stingy, and the people who have nots even more have not. You know, I mean, yeah, it, oh yeah, it's there was a huge divide between the haves and the haves not have nots that really couldn't compare to just about any other time. Well, I mean, maybe any other recent time. All right, so in 1941, with Alan Lomax and his family in tow. <laughs> dude how how does this dude have time so this is after the sunhouse stuff now it's just just to kind of keep it chronological <laughs> after he's done with all of that shit from sunhouse's episode now he's hanging out with woody guthrie and going uh are you talking sunhouse or lead belly Oh, lead belly, excuse me. That was <laughs> you confused the shit out of me. I was oh, no, trying to figure out what you were talking about. No, there. I'm sorry. That's that was my mispronunciation <laughs> with all the lead belly stuff. <laughs> okay, I feel better now because you just confused the shit out of me. So anyway, in nineteen in nineteen forty one, he traveled to the Pacific Northwest, where he was commissioned by the Bonneville Power Administration to write songs in support of the federal dam building and electrification project, you know, for the Grand Coulee Dam. See, oh my god. Being somebody who we this podcast is recorded in the Pacific or Northwest, and I have been to the the Bonneville Dam, to the yeah, Hoover Dam, we to, both have to it, all the places in this, this song means song. a lot to me. Yeah, this or this album, I should say. Yeah, the, and the, the album's whole, called Columbia River Ballads, by the way. Yeah, so do check out Columbia River Ballads in its entirety. There's a, <laughs> there's a also couple. specifically if you don't want to check out the whole album, at least check out Roll On Columbia. And the biggest thing man has ever done. Yeah, the biggest thing the man has ever done is a. It's great. It, it's just a monument to technology. Everything we've said so far would imply a lot of like political intonation to his music. There's not. Like that's the thing. Not that, always. That's there in the songs that have it. They are about that. Thing. Yeah. Well, you don't write as many songs as he did and have everything be political. No, exactly. So most of these songs are about you know like <laughs> spreading electricity. Yeah. Right? Well, and I've got a quote by Woody Guthrie on being in the Pacific Northwest. And he said, The Pacific Northwest is one of my favorite spots in the world. And I'm one walker that stood way up and looked way down across a plenty of pretty sights in all their veiled and nakedest seasons. The Pacific Northwest has got mineral mountains. It's got chemical desert. It's got rough run canyons. It's got saw blade snow caps. It's got ridges of nine kinds of brown. Hills of six colors of green, ridges, five shades of shadows, and stickers, the eight tones of hell. I pulled my shoes on and walked out of every one of these Pacific Northwest mountain towns, drawing pictures in my mind and listening to poems and songs and words faster to come and dance in my ears than I could. Damn it. 
<laughs> and dan and dance in my ears than I could ever get them wrote down. And that's just it is so true. Like Washington and Oregon and Idaho are just such like beautiful places with yeah. such a unique like if you And he if you really he, yeah. Even though I kind of fucked it up there in the end, he really does paint the picture of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, exactly. Like if you if you've never researched it, there's a desert right on the other side of the mountains of like this heavily rainy forested area, and it's just such an enigma of existence. Yeah, a place where you got deserts and mountains and evergreen trees and tons of rivers and yeah. tons of life. We love Washington. That's what we're telling you guys. Don't move here. We love it. We don't want you here. Yeah, there's too many people here already. <laughs> Way too many people. <laughs> You're not invited. Sorry. So when his contract expired, he moved back to Pampas, Texas with his family. Fucking Pampas. And from what I can tell, he dropped his family off there and traveled and performed his way back to New York. And it was there <laughs> he joined. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, there wasn't a whole lot of information. But it said he moved back with his family and then immediately traveled and went to New York. So, and this is where this is where there's sort of a disconnect. We're not going to try to explain any of the man's behaviors, but he has abandoned his wife and children twice. Two, two separate wives and children. No, 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 no. Oh, just, the same, just the same one. Oh, the same. Okay, excuse me. So he's he's abandoned his wife. Twice now. Twice. Yeah. Just... Not just wife, wife and kids. Oh, my God. But he has brought them to New York and the Pacific Northwest. I mean, I wouldn't. Okay. I'm not discussing that. <laughs> and so it was uh, there in New York, Woody Guthrie joined the Almanac Singers, a left-wing folk music group that included Pete Seeger. On February 14th, 1942, the Almanacs gave him their greatest exposure when they performed on a program titled This Is War which was aired by four major networks. But soon after this, their communist affiliations would prevent them from achieving commercial success, and they dissolved within a year. But most of the members of the Almanacs were very anti-Nazi, and they enrolled in the U.S. military. And so this is where this big disconnection comes in. And so let's take a second to really like focus in on it, because it's important. Because people were viewed as being communists then. But what they were viewed as is not what we're talking about with Cold War communism. They were not viewed as Russian communists or anything like that. Alternative thinkers, yeah, basically. They, they were literally labeled as, you know, communism being this thought that, you know, anything should be shared for any reason. And that is kind of what labeled them. And when the Cold War communism came about, they used that term to their advantage and further expanded upon it. But you have to kind of keep that moment of separation there. But still, even then, the whole Marxist idea wasn't accepted all that well among the majority of people. No, exactly. And, like, there is there is some evidence that, you know, most of these people probably did probably read Marxist stuff. Oh, yeah, and, for sure. And definitely might have even believed in a good portion of it. I mean, but just, that is not the same it, as Cold War communism sending nuclear... <laughs> nuclear-powered spies, you know what I mean? Just like, look at Pete Seeger's career. I mean, that's really all you got to look at. No, he definitely read some Marxist stuff. Yeah, exactly. Pete Seeger probably is a quote-unquote communist, if you want to take it that way. But, like, it's not that... Let's not use the buzzword. Let's use... Uh, I, you have to, though, because it's important to the story. Oh, I, well, for the... Yeah, but we have to separate it from that portion. And if you're thinking Woody Guthrie didn't help out with the war efforts, he did. He joined the Merchant Marines... And 
while he did this, he also composed a lot of anti-fascist songs. But if you don't know what a merchant marine is, they primarily transport cargo and passengers during peacetime. And in times of war, the merchant marines are an auxiliary of the United States Navy and can be called upon to deliver military personnel and material for the military. And it's actually quite a dangerous job. In World War II, one out of every 26 mariners were killed. Yeah. In fact, Woody Guthrie lost two of the three ships he served on during the war, too. Yeah, well, I mean, more specifically. Okay, so let's talk about something for a second. There is some unconfirmed nonsense that goes around the internet about Woody Guthrie lobbying to the U.S. military to be a USO performer. And I wasn't able to find any evidence, like actual evidence. People wrote it down a whole bunch of times. That he was just a USO No, no that, that he tried to get out of his efforts beforehand. By uh, becoming a USO performer. And so maybe... Yeah, see, everything I read said he was... Because he was so anti-Nazi, too. No, exactly. So, so I mean, I just want to make sure that we clarified that. That, I mean, though, it might have happened. And if we have some actual evidence and you have some actual evidence, by all means, throw me the evidence, guys. I love evidence. Kick it over here. So, you know, let's make that happen if you can find it. But I can't. Yeah, please help us out if we screw up on any of our research, honestly. So there is some evidence, by the way, that Cisco Houston, the dude that we gave the shout out to earlier, yep. and a guy named uh, Jim Lingui, or Longui, L-O-N-G-H-I. They Luigi? Were... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Jim Luigi uh, persuaded uh, him to join the Merchant Marines sometime in June 1943. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh and actually, around this time was uh, when his marriage to his first wife ended, too. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. She, he's like, hey, babe, I'm going to join the Merchant Marines and go fight Hitler. And she's it's like, bitch, we have kids. <laughs> we, you got to take care of your kids. <laughs> Who are you? Thanks for mentioning the year, because I was trying to figure out when I was supposed to bring that fact in. Yep, nope, that's your fact right there. <laughs> he, his wife's like, nope, sorry, we're not doing another Merchant <laughs> yeah, Marine we're done. thing. <laughs> So either way, he say he served on a total of three different ship voyages, and two of these had major events. Okay, so so two of them actually did sink. No, no, none of them sank. What? They had major events, sir. Well, I said I guess I did. I guess I did read they were lost. Yeah, no, n- neither. Well, yeah, they they might not have been well, you know salvageable. We're not going <laughs> to talk about that. But either way, so it's, the first one was the USS William B. Travis. I don't know who the fuck William B. Travis is. If you know who William B. Travis is, hit me with the evidence. You know, let's see who it, William B. Travis is. I'm sure he's someone cool. Second ship was the uh, SS William Floyd. William Floyd sounds also like a cool guy. If you got evidence and stuff, hit me with it. Sounds like a bunch of white guys to me. Yep, I know. Number three is the SS Sea Porpoise. Hey, if you got information about sea porpoises, hit me with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, like, we love sea porpoises. <laughs> or just send us some pictures. Yeah, no, just cute pictures of porpoises is totally acceptable. But either way, uh, while they traveled in convoys, uh, they traveled in convoys during the Battle of the Atlantic. He served as a mess man and a dishwasher. Really, uh, someone's got to do it. Yeah, most likely he got stuck there because he sang for the crew and the troops. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they, they were like, "Hey, maybe we should not let this guy well, who sings really well, well get killed." Everywhere I did my research, they all say that really what he did a lot was just write songs about how much he hated Hitler and fascism and yeah, stuff like that. I mean, honestly, dude, check out this song. Anything like ooh, I don't remember. The I don't name know. Is. I got I got a good dude. Check out the oh. song. Do check out the song. All you fascists bound to lose. That right there, that is the nationalism that is good. 
You know what I mean? We we're not trying to to downplay anyone's political views. It's just, hey, you're you're Nazis. Nazis have been proven bad. All you Nazis bound to lose. And, you know what I mean? and punk bands keep going on about this anti-fascist stuff. Cover this fucking song. Yeah, I would love to see it. Hey, punk bands out there, add us with all these fascists bound to lose covers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll play it on air. Yeah, no, exactly. So either way, at this point, we're going to start talking about his ship's not sinking. The uh, William B. Travis hit a mine in the Mediterranean Sea. One person was killed. Well, that's still a person killed. Yeah, I mean, that, that poor person, that's got to suck. I'm not trying to downplay. But then the ship literally sailed into Tunisia under its own power. Okay, well, maybe that's what they mean by lost. Is it just wasn't serviceable for the war efforts anymore then. Yeah, they were probably like, dude, there's a big hole in it and some blood in this guy's boots we can't use this anymore we had to have his boots there how do you think we got it from not sinking <laughs> uh this is where the the story gets sad as the sad porpoise noises play his last <laughs> ship the sea porpoise <laughs> i'm sorry but you can't say that that was way too funny you can't go this is sad and then say that sentence <laughs> it's sad porpoise noises my friend while taking troops from England to France for the D&D and or <laughs> the D&D. We swear this is sad, everybody. Well, okay, <laughs> pull you back. <clears throat> Just start from the beginning. Yeah. I'll be ser- serious. All right. <clears throat> His last ship, the Sea Porpoise, took troops from the United <laughs> Okay, uh, no more of that. So either way, it was taking troops to D-Day. It got torpedoed <laughs> off the beach or Utah You're beach. Just done. Yeah, we're we're just we're just done with that portion of it. We're either way, they took a torpedo off Utah Beach. Utah. Ooh. I don't know anybody who wants to Google Utah Beach. We'll see what the fuck Utah Beach is. But if you're at Utah Beach, I don't give a shit if you're cooking breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You're a fucking hero. That place is scary. This is like, especially if you're taking torpedoes. Yeah, no, this is where they were invading. Like, um, this is D-Day, guys. This is like some big shit. Yeah. Either way, they were shot by a German submarine U three ninety. So, <laughs> me being a nerd as fuck, I thought, you know, why don't I take a little look at U three ninety? Fucking nerd. Yep. It was January fifth, nineteen forty four. Twelve crew members were injured. Guthrie took no Im- or no injuries at all, and the ship stayed afloat and returned to England no problem. It was repaired at Newcastle. No biggie. Hmm. Yeah, well. Did he come out and goes, hey guys, I made eggs. What What happened? U-39 was not so uh, lucky that day, though. U-39 had only made three voyages in total. Though it had a successful day, it would... Uh, end unsuccessfully, I'm guessing? Yeah, it, it was an unsuccessful end to a successful day. <laughs> Whereas they attacked a British anti-submarine trawler, the USS Nally, or Ganili, G-A-N-I-L-L-Y, Ganali. And then she landed uh, one successful torpedo on the uh, sea porpoise, which I assume that the Ganali was probably in relation to, maybe in the same formation or something like that. But then uh, on the same day, she was sunk by death charges. <laughs> Two uh, British ships. Got what you deserve. Yep, the HMS Wanderer and a frigate HMS Tavi. They they sunk the ship. <laughs> 48 men died, one survivor. I don't know why I laughed before that. I'm so, they're Nazis, guys. I get to laugh when Nazis die. <laughs> so while he was on furlough from the Merchant Marines, he married his second wife. 
Marjorie Greenblatt Mazia. And after the war in 1964, the couple made their home in Coney Island, New York. God, I love Coney Island. And then they eventually had four children. Dude's popping out so many kids. As we're up to seven now. Is this, I even, is I even this, wrote that in my notes. Is so this I Arlo? Keep... Yep. So we got, we got Kathy, who died at the age of four in a tragic home fire. What the? <laughs> yeah, Dude, I know. Stop. <laughs> it's too late in history for you to be. I think we're done with the house fires after this, though. What the fuck, man? And so then you got Arlo, Jody, and Nora. I mean, those are cool names. I like Arlo. And Nora's the one who had that paper on file in her archives. So she's like the youngest kid. I don't know. I couldn't find age. I didn't really look too hard into okay. their ages, but this is just the order they were listed in. That's the order I went with. <laughs> and it was during this time Woody Guthrie would write more songs, but he definitely went a different direction with this. Songs songs to grow on for mother and child and work songs to grow on. So it was really just a lot of children's songs that he wrote right now, like Don't You Push Me Down, Standing Up to Bullies, you know, like Ship in the Sky, Howdy Do, Pick It Up, Clino, and Riding in My Car. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I was hoping that you wouldn't mention that because I was going to throw that out, but is that your... That's my dude check out oh the song for Because I was about to do that if you didn't. We love this song. <laughs> it's, it's a good song. It's not just because him and I love to play it and it's a joking song, but God damn it, if you have kids, play them car song. <laughs> They'll love it. You'll love it. It is a great song. <laughs> And also during these years, he really got to know the Jewish community, really through his mother-in-law. She was a Yiddish poet named Eliza Greenblatt. And, uh, you know, he wrote a bunch of songs about Jewish culture, like Hanukkah Dance, The Many and the Few, Mermaids Avenue. Will somebody at us with some of those poems? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear some of those poems. That sounds awesome. Yeah, let's awesome. get those poems out there. And I didn't really have a, do check out the song for that section, but... You know, there's more shit that he wrote. Dude, check out those poems. Dude, check out those I'm poems. I'm going to check out those poems. Dude, 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 check out those poems, and then dude, check out you sending those poems poems to us. Yeah, no, yeah. Dude, <laughs> dude, check out you doing our work for us. <laughs> we appreciate it. Tell you what, if, if if we get some cool poems, we'll do an episode about her, even though she doesn't play music. We'll sing. We'll figure it out. Towards the late 1940s, uh, Guthrie's behavior started to become increasingly erratic, moody, and violent. Oh, no. Creating tensions in his personal and professional life. Is it the the mama thing? He was beginning to show symptoms of the rare neurological disease, Huntington's <sighs> chorea, or Huntington's disease. And shaken by all these physical and emotional symptoms... Woody Guthrie left his family again, taking off for California. God damn it, Woody. Stop it. <laughs> you have a neurological disease. Don't go rambling. <laughs> oh, he totally went rambling with his protege, Ramblin' Jack Elliott. The dude's name is Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Yep. Yeah, I really need to check him out. I didn't have enough time to check him out for, for the research, but I don't know. With his name, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, his story is either really cool or really sad. Yeah. Or lame. Or lame. Maybe he gave himself the nickname. If you give yourself the name Ramblin' Anything, go fuck yourself, dude. <laughs> you got a rambler harder than somebody who would call themselves rambling to to get the nickname Rambler. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like somebody who is actually a rambler has to think, oh, that guy rambles harder than me. And then he'll be like calling you, this is Ramblin' Frank Eck 
whatever. I've got kids in 24 of the 50 states. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't even know if there's 50 states yet. Then, but. <laughs> this is not, dude, check out this historical geography. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? And so anyway, when he got to California, he arrived at his uh, friend Will Greer's property. I got the name right this time. Will. Will Greer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I struggle with that name. And that's where he met his third wife. God damn it. Annick Van Kirk. And they had a daughter, Lorena. I early, earlier I said last kid. It wasn't last kid. Nope. He had to go this for is eight. definitely the youngest. And so he went for eight, huh? He went for eight. He went the Octfeca. <laughs> Octodad. <laughs> so <laughs> in the late 1940s and early 1950s, saw a rise to anti-communist settlements. Uh, sentiments? Sentiments, what I say? Settlements? Settlements. <laughs> sentiments, yeah. <laughs> Americans with leftist and progressive-minded ideas were subject to the Red Scare and started getting blacklisted. This is where that disconnect we talked about earlier is going to start disappearing. Yeah, especially with blacklisting. You had to talk about Pete Seeger and his band, The Weavers. I mean, if you follow any sort of musical history, you have some idea about Pete Seeger and everybody uh, yeah. being, call him a communist. Which he definitely was. Good night, Irene. <laughs> the Weavers was basically a reformed version of the Almanacs. They formed in 1984, and man, they just, they were a hit machine for a band. And even though Guthrie wasn't in it, they helped his career along. They covered his song so long, it's been good to know you. Woody Guthrie did it better. Uh, he always does. But after a little while, because of them being labeled communists, they were blacklisted too. And the popularization of folk music started to disappear because of the blacklisting. Mush mouth over here. <laughs> it's all right. This is not, dude, check out this pronunciation ability. <laughs> neither Maybe of, someday it will be. Neither of us actually speak English, so you should be impressed that you can understand the things we're saying right now. So I'm pretty impressed. And that was really just a little side note, because really Woody Guthrie just kept traveling around. Then he ended up in South Florida with a friend and activist named Stetson Kennedy. He offered kind of a, I don't know, a haven for blacklisted artists, you know. Stetson Kennedy. I know, great name, right? God, that's either the best or the worst name. I don't know <laughs> if it's a villain name or a hero name. <laughs> and so while he was, uh, while he was on his property... Woody Guthrie uh, worked on a novel called Seeds of Man. I don't think I've actually heard much from this album. I, it, well, that's because it's a novel. Oh. <laughs> well, I've definitely heard nothing from that novel. Apparently, he wrote a few. I did not know that before uh, researching this podcast. I mean, I, I knew he wrote one. I wrote I read one oh, book he wrote. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't Seeds of Man? No. I want to say, is this train coming? Might be it might be names. I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't prepare for that. But yeah, there is a book that he wrote that I read. That there's a couple of them. I don't yeah. know. I was it was a long time ago. It's like high school era. So yeah, well, in this era, he started to get more unpredictable, you know. And really, he just had to move back to New York with his wife Annick. And number two or number three? This is number three. Yeah. And uh, the, you know, he just kept getting hospitalized over and over and over and over again. Every time he was misdiagnosed, anything from alcoholism to schizophrenia, but his symptoms kept getting worse, and his physical condition started deteriorating. 
At one point, he was picked up for vagrancy in New Jersey in 1954 and admitted into a psychiatric hospital, and that's where he was finally diagnosed with Huntington's disease. Even though his fucking mom had it and she died. Like, yeah, but they didn't know anything about it then. It God was, damn, that pisses me off. Like, I get it. Medicine advanced and all that stuff. But Jesus, you couldn't see it. Like, oh, his mom had this disease and it made her erratic and yeah, crazy. Yeah, but I mean, documents back then were sketchy at best. Yeah, I know. I, Especially I've, when his mom died. I've learned that doing just research for this, that the documents <laughs> available for some of these people is fucked up like and that's why there's we have so many supposedly this happened because i mean we don't really actually know yeah so i mean that once again pulls up the fact if if you guys have evidence to anything against anything we've said or for anything we've said that we didn't mention fucking throw it yeah, at us. we uh, like we like evidence and we will get these updates in for sure because you know we really want to have the best information possible and obviously you know with him being in and out of the hospital suffering from huntington's disease his marriage collapsed and of so of course it did. They got divorced. And during the last years of his life, Woody Guthrie's second wife, Marjorie, came back into the picture. And all of his children visited him in the hospital regularly. But his most famous visit was by a young musician at the time named Bob Dylan, who supposedly snuck into the hospital room. Okay, let's do a lot of supposedlies on this because Bob Dylan made this claim, if I remember correctly. Yeah, well, I think it was Bob Dylan who claimed that he snuck in. Yeah, exactly. So Bob Dylan claims that he went and saw Woody Guthrie. And so I'm, I'm a bit, pretty big fan of Woody it, Guthrie. It, it, it was said that they did become, uh, uh, that Woody Guthrie did warm up to Bob Dylan. So I think he did kind of get to know him a little bit by the end of his life. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, it's probably 100% likely. Just yeah, because. I don't know if he snuck in. That's why I put yeah. the supposedly. Okay. Well, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, you know, Bob Dylan, he's got a whole like song for Woody Guthrie where it's a, it's a whole talking Woody Guthrie riff. Yeah. I got a quote from Bob Dylan about Woody Guthrie, too. The songs themselves were really beyond category. They had the infinite sweep of humanity in them. And I really feel like there should be a man in there, because I don't know. It just seems like Bob Dylan would be like, and the songs themselves were really beyond category, man. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> if you ever watched a Bob Dylan interview, you know he said man. And I, they, know, they, I know, I know. Just... So it doesn't sound like a uh, Bob Dylan. Would you give it to me one more time? The songs themselves were really beyond category. They had the infinite sweep of humanity in them. That's just... From a man like Bob Dylan, who is, okay, admittedly a infamous possible narcissist. <laughs> At least the uh, asshole. Yeah. At least getting a minor asshole spotlight, even for me thinking about him right now. <laughs> that sort of praise coming from a man like that, it does go high. Yeah. And... That leads to my dude check out this song, which you already kind of mentioned, but it's called Song to Woody. And then the other one is not actually a song, but it's a poem written by Bob Dylan called Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie. And it's like a seven minute epic poem and it's really good. Oh, my God. This and, is this and is it's something. still on YouTube. You got to check it out. Yeah, this is something that is just worth listening to. Like, I mean, whether you like Bob Dylan or not, no matter what you've heard, no matter anything. And he doesn't have the nasally voice during it, you know. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a meme. It's just this is a fucking good seven minute poem. And he reads it with some serious honesty and, you, and real conviction. Yeah, you, you honestly feel like you feel the conviction. And it doesn't matter if you like Woody Guthrie, know Woody Guthrie, like folk music, like Bob Dylan, anything. You listen to this and you can feel the emotion. And really, if if you're listening to this podcast, 
we don't want to check out any of these songs. Why? Yeah. Why are you here? <laughs> yeah, you've wasted your time if you're here not checking out our songs. <laughs> so, on October 3rd, 1967, he finally succumbed to his disease, and he died in the Creedmoor State Hospital in Queens, New York. His ashes were sprinkled into the water off Coney Island shore. One month later, on Thanksgiving, Woody's son Arlo released his first commercial recording of Alice's Restaurant. If you guys have never listened to the song, you should check it out. That's one God of my dude, check out the oh, songs. Okay. I, 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 <laughs> you see how I'm, I set this I, up? I, so you're making me do it. So at first I'm feeling like an asshole because I'm stealing your dude. Check out this time. But I just saw you cast that line. You're setting me up for failure here. Uh, no, I'm setting you up for success, but making you look like an asshole. <laughs> just like our band so do check out Alice's Restaurant. Yeah, it's it's a, like an eighteen minute epic song. Yeah, it's it's great. It's, and it was, I don't know, the radio around here used to play it every Thanksgiving. I don't know if they still do. Yeah, I, I mean it's it's a beautiful romp in hippie nonsense. It really is. It is. It is great. It is great in all ways. But it's hard to see somebody mimic his father so hard. Though. Right. Yeah, he really did want to be him. I mean talk about woody guthrie you know he wrote an estimated 1000 songs in three books yeah no exactly and i've heard an estimation somewhere that he would play something more in the repetition or repetition of 10,000 songs yeah i've heard i've seen the number 3,000 thrown out there yeah, no exactly so it really depends on the sources that you really listen to but but this one seemed the best because this is the number i ran across the most yeah so we'll, we'll say he wrote a thousand songs that's that is estimated at yeah least. so i mean that's that is you just you just wrote and wrote and wrote. Just kept going forever. God, he just started. He just kept writing until the point where it was. This man was an artist with words. Every once in a while, I write a song. I wouldn't consider myself a professional by any means, and I'm not. Dude, don't check out any of the things I've written because it's not worth your time. Dude, check out like Woody Guthrie, and it's not for any other reason than the fact that he makes wordplay effortless. The things that he says. And fun, too. I mean, really, like, he'll have, like, a fun little melody in his words. And then then you start listening to the words. You're like, oh, this is about something serious. Yeah, no. And he'll do weird things like turn, like, singular words into multiple, like, like throat, like, exclamations. And it makes this rhyme out of words that don't rhyme. And he he writes this, like, interesting phraseology. You, you, we started in this, this podcast night with this machine kills fascists. And at this point, if you don't understand why this machine kills fascists, just hit the stop button. It doesn't matter. Because the reality of the fact is, this machine does kill fascists. Spreading about ideas, thoughts, being reasonable as a person, that's what kills... Treating your fellow man right. Yeah, that's, that's what kills negative mentalities. The fact that he wrote so well... Not only played, obviously, to his advantage, making him known even now, many years after his death, it played to his disadvantage. He was thought to be a communist. I mean, though he, you know, did some actions that related himself with some heavy socialist figures. And he probably believed in communism. Yeah. But, but I, you but, also got to remember, like, this was really when he got these ideas is before the USSR, before communist China really got going. Yeah. You know, it was it was an alternative idea out there that, you know, seemed like a better solution to the way the world was going. Because, I mean, he grew up during the Great Depression, so he saw the bad spots of capitalism. The reality is he never 
whilst, while preaching, sharing with his common man. It was never about this totalitarian communism regime that we have now attached to the word. So it's unfair to attach a word like that to a man like that. Like, I would give him socialist, 100%. He was pro-union. He, he thought for socialist, like, you know, reforms in all ways. He put together these stories, like we talked about the Ludlow Massacre, where he really took the socialist issues to the yeah. front. I think I got a great quote from him that kind of brings us on to kind of his attitudes about, about everything he believed, really, I think. Watch the kids. Do like they do. Act like they act. Yell like they yell. Dance the ways you see them dance. Sing like they sing. Work and rest the way kids do. You'll be healthier. You'll feel wealthier. You'll talk wiser. You'll go higher, do better, and live longer here amongst us if you'll just only jump in here and swim around in these songs and do like the kids do. I don't want the kids to be grown up. I want to see the grown folks be kids. And that... That just proves like such an intellectual maturity in the way that he thought about things. He's a bit of an asshole in his real life, you know. All musicians are kind of a bit of an asshole in their real that's, life. That's kind of the thing, you know. You you run into that never meet your never meet your idol thing. Yeah, it becomes more true the more I seek into all these people. And you know the things he did might. Well, have... I think it just makes him more human though, because you realize every human's got flaws. Everybody is flawed, and that is really... And at least a, he didn't stab anybody. Yeah, no, he didn't slash anybody with a razor. No <laughs> razor slashing. No razor slashing. In fact, very little violence in this episode, other than, you know, like, I guess <laughs> Germany doing some bad stuff. And, <laughs> yeah, and the Ludlow Massacre. Yeah. But he didn't... Woody Guthrie didn't participate in that. Yeah, he had, he had nothing to do with that. And honestly, he just made pancakes during World War II, so let's not really put too much of that in No, he play. made pancakes and wrote songs. <laughs> So what do you got through really, I mean, it comes down to the fact that it seems like people want to pick and choose. Don't pick and choose. Think of reality. You can't make this land is your land, your alternate national anthem, without also thinking about the things this motherfucker said otherwise. Things like, any fool can make something complicated. It takes a genius to make something simple. Like, I like that. Like, that's, here's another one. All my words, if not well taken, are well meant. Like, that's what I mean. Like, it, yeah. even though you don't understand, I didn't mean nothing bad by it. Anyone who uses more than two chords is just showing off. <laughs> Woody Guthrie. Well, I'm going to disagree with him on that one. <laughs> I have to include that one just as a musician. That is, <laughs> that's some folk logic right there. You're doing more than two chords. You're just, you're just doing something. And here we now start to get into these, these political quotes here. I ain't a communist necessarily. But I've been red all my life. <laughs> like I said, it's 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 not about being communist. It's not about being pro-socialist. Look at it. He's making fucking fun of it. He doesn't. He's not supporting any red agenda. He's making fun of you because you can't grasp what he is actually about. You're trying to apply some stupid word to it. Yeah, a lot like today, actually. Exactly, a lot like today. And then we he continues this amazing wordplay with right wing. Left wing, chicken wing. <laughs> Woody Guthrie. I think I'm going to use that from now on. Oh my God. Like it's, it's. This is not a political podcast at all, but it had to be mentioned with Woody Guthrie yeah, too. I, like we said. That's a game. huge part of his narrative. Yeah. And so we're not, honestly, I, I want to tell you, we're not pushing any sort of political narrative None. because that is literally not what we're about. What we're about is you thinking about things. Just think. 
Well, and really just learning about musicians that have really greatly contributed to the music that we have today. Yeah, exactly. Music is a tool. It really is. And you know what I'm he puts that on his guitar. This machine kills fascists. That's what it does. And that, that, that's what he wanted. He wanted a weapon. Yeah, he, so he weaponized his words and his thoughts and, you know... His voice. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if some people want to villainize a man who can also write, this land is your land, let's not fucking forget. We all sang this in middle school, or preschool. Oh, man, I, I don't even remember when I learned it. It's just always been there. Yeah, like, I couldn't think of a time when you didn't know this song. If you can appreciate this song so heavily and can't, like, appreciate the fact that he thinks, hey, maybe some poor people should have a couple bucks to eat a fucking piece of bread... You might be in the asshole spotlight yourself tonight. <laughs> so the asshole Ooh. spotlights on anybody who's listening that can't be respectful of all people. You judgmental asshole. Just yeah. let them be a human. Yeah, I know. Just let them be. To finish out this podcast, I think I got an Alan Lomax quote that really just kind of will put the nail in the coffin of this episode. To Woody, poet of the rain-starved dust bowl, this mighty stream of cool, clear water coursing through evergreen forests, verdant meadows, and high deserts was like a vision of paradise. He saw the majestic Grand Coulee Dam as the creation of the common man to harness the river for the common good. Work for the jobless, power to ease household tasks, power to strengthen Uncle Sam in his fight against world fascism. Thank you for listening to Do Check Out This Song. We'll see you next week. Seriously, thank you guys so much for coming out. Yeah, thank you guys. And if you want more, check out our social media. We got Facebook, we got Twitter, and we got Spotify. That's right. If you want to do check out this song, do check out our Spotify because we're making playlists for every episode. Yeah, if you want more after the episode, listen to the Spotify playlist. We've got all the songs we recommended and then some. If you like us a lot, give us a high rating on whatever platform you look at. And if you got any artists you want to suggest, let us know. We would love to make an episode about them. Yeah, so have a good evening. Bye.